0: You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels.
1: Can One Doctor Make a Difference in the Way the American Medical System Administers Health Care? Joining us to discuss social and political activism in medicine and health care is Senior Lecturer in the Department of Social Medicine at the Harvard Medical School, the first woman to serve as Editor-in-Chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, as well as a board-certified pathologist, Dr. Marsha Angel. Marsha, thanks very much for joining me today on the program.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: A lot of my listeners, of course, know about you from your editorship of the New England Journal and a lot of the other important positions that you've taken in medicine, but I think a lot of them don't know how you got there, and I I wonder if I could hear a little bit about how you got interested in pathology and uh, what took you into that field of medicine.
2: Well, I think it was mainly a matter of mentors that I met in medical school. I think that's true for a lot of people. But in my generation, it was more true for women, I think, than for men, even. When I was in medical school, the chairman of the Department of Pathology was Stanley Robbins.
1: Oh, yeah. What a wonderful, wonderful
2: A wonderful man, right. The author of the top-selling, biggest textbook of pathology in the world. I began to, I was putting myself through medical school, and I began to do that by helping him editing a little in the third edition that he was writing at that time. Uh, Later, he and I created a book together that's known as Baby Robins now, but it was originally Robins and Angel, and that went through four editions. And so it was primarily because of him that I decided to do a residency in pathology and get my union card, so to speak, (laughs) in in the field of the book I had written.
1: Did you do anatomical pathology, or clinical path, or what did you do? No,
2: I did anatomical.
1: When did you begin to get interested in uh, medical journalism?
2: Well, another mentor also at Boston University School of Medicine was Arnold Relman, and I did an elective with him when I was a third-year medical student and became very interested in the kidney. He is a nephrologist. After it would have been in my internship, I wrote a paper with both Relman and Robbins that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was back in 1968. It was Angel, Relman, and Robbins about abacterial chronic pyelonephritis. So he was also very, very important in the course, my professional course. He became editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine in 1977. And I joined part-time, the staff, in 1979. And the arrangement was I would work there part-time for that year. And at the end of the year, I would decide whether I wanted to stay in pathology and continue as an author of the Robbins textbook or whether I would burn my bridges in pathology and stay full-time at the New England Journal of Medicine. So that was a real decision node in 1980. And I had no problem making that decision. By the end of that year, I was in love with the New England Journal of Medicine, with medical journalism and all the opportunities that that provided.
1: Do you miss or did you miss doing the pathology?
2: A little. Uh, I gave up my role in the book to Vinnie Kumar at that time. And he continues now to be doing both of the Robbins textbooks. I missed it a little. But the problem with pathology, and I did my residency in pathology, the problem with pathology is that I didn't have live patients. I was looking either at dead patients or at pieces of patients. Uh I missed dealing with patients. I had done a couple of years of internal medicine before I did pathology. And I really liked diagnosis. I liked the detective work. And that was gone in a sense. So leaving it all together, pathology all together, was not as big a loss. I'd already felt that loss in leaving internal medicine.
1: Well, you were uh, the first woman editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. I think most of us, and the only to this day, and certainly most of us think of it as the most prestigious medical journal in the world, certainly one of the top two or three medical journals in the world, a pressurized job by any account. Did you feel any special kind of pressure being the first woman there?
2: No, I didn't. I think that that's really a credit to my colleagues there. When I became editor-in-chief, there were five full-time deputy editors and six part-time, one-day-a-week associate editors, and every one of them was a man. Every one of them was a man. And yet, I never felt any resentment. I felt nothing but support and respect from them. So, maybe I should have felt more pressure, but I really didn't.
1: (laughs) If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on Reach MD Radio, XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels. Joining me today is Dr. Marsha Angel, and we're discussing the role of physician as political activist. Well, there was a big health care bill passed, it barely passed. Uh, It was a heck of a process. Are you happy with it, Uh, Marsha? What is your view of it?
2: No, I'm not. And I have discussed this at length with some of my closest friends, my husband, many of whom say, well, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. This is at least a step in the right direction. And I guess my feeling is that it's a step in the wrong direction. I would rather have seen it not pass. And the problem is it does nothing to control costs at cost. That's the basic problem. I mean, if, if costs were no issue, then everybody could have all the health care they wanted. So clearly, it's, can we provide health care at a sustainable cost? And I don't think that this does it. There, there is absolutely no cost control in it.
1: You think it would have been better for it not to pass, in, which would have caused a crisis of some sort, a worse crisis. Is that right?
2: I don't think it would have caused a worse crisis. I mean, my point is that this new bill, it leaves the private health insurance industry in place as the linchpin of the system. It does nothing to control the prices of prescription drugs. So essentially what the president and the Democratic Party said is this is a terrible system, and so let's put more money into it. They have a dysfunctional system. They haven't changed the system. They've just poured more money into the same system. So by the law of mass effect, I think that prices will continue to go up and probably even more rapidly. And the insurance industry will continue its bad behavior despite the regulations that are supposed to go into effect gradually. I think it would be very hard to enforce those. And anything that threatens their profits, they'll simply raise the premiums. So I think what we're gonna get is cost inflation that's even greater than we have had.
1: I had as uh, one of my guests, Tom Lee, who I'm sure you know very well. Yes. And he uh-huh. and uh, Jim Mongan wrote this book, Chaos and Organization in Healthcare. And their view is that uh, we need to go to a system that's more of a closed system, like a National Kaiser or Cleveland Clinic or something of that kind. Is that how you see it?
2: I agree with that. This continues this fragmented system in which all the pieces are trying to maximize their profits and revenues and and dump patients who have the temerity to actually get sick onto another payer. So it has not changed it. And what we need is a fundamental overhaul. And you can imagine several ways this could happen. I proposed having Medicare The Medicare age dropped decade by decade gradually, so that initially you would just drop Medicare to the age of 55, and then after a while, maybe to 45, until everybody had Medicare for all. Now, Medicare would have to be changed in some ways. It's delivered in profit-seeking delivery system, too, and I think it would have to be delivered in a nonprofit system. But still, the first thing is to take care of the financing of it, and I think Medicare for all would have been a simple way to do it, and we already have Medicare as the most popular part of our system. Why not expand that instead of creating this Rube Goldberg apparatus?
1: I'm going to get you back on here because I'd like to discuss this one at greater length, but I do want to ask you one other area of interest of yours, and that's the involvement of the pharmaceutical industry in medical education, in medicine in general. You've taken some very strong positions about that. Are you feeling that the changes that have occurred as partly as a result of some of the things that you said with tougher rules by hospitals and systems, do you think that's getting at the main problem or not?
2: Not yet largely because of pressure from Senator Grassley and others, I think there's starting to be some nibbling away at the influence that drug companies now exert on the medical profession as a whole and academic medicine in particular we're starting to see a little pushback on that but it's still way too little it seems to me that the medical schools and the teaching hospitals are somehow trying to come up with some way that they can look good but keep the money and they're not going to be able to do that. Uh, at some point, they're going to have to say no to some of that good money that they're getting from the drug companies.
1: I was just talking to Steve Nesson uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. He takes a very strong position similar to yours about this and doesn't accept anything himself, of course. But he said that he thought it was critical that medicine continue to work with the industry that it was important for the development of new drugs and devices and so on. What is your view about that? Do you think that can be done and done in a clean way or not?
2: I think it can. The only legitimate role for the drug companies is in doing basic research mainly on possible drugs and also funding the clinical trials that they have to do in order to get their drugs approved by the FDA. So it's not that they fund the clinical trials or that they are involved in early research, but the terms, the terms of the relationship. I think that the funding of clinical trials should be at arm's length. That the academic faculty who are doing the trials should have no other financial connections with the company that is sponsoring their work, that they should have responsibility, the researchers should have responsibility for designing the trial. They should have the data. They should do the interpretation, write the papers. The awarding of grants from the drug company should be at arm's length. And it was that way up until about, 20 or 30 years ago. I think we have to go back to that. Now the companies exert enormous control. So I think that there can be some interaction, but the terms, they have to be very, very carefully done.
1: Well, I want to thank my guest, Senior Lecturer of Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Marcia Angel. Uh, Marcia, thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act.
0: I enjoyed it, Mari. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing medical education. At PrimeMed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up to date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day patients and their average and not so average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. Primed CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently. That's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live, because you like to interact with peers and faculty. Online, because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule and in print because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, Primed delivers knowledge that touches patients. Primed CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300 plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust PRIMED as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always-on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative cutting-edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit PRIMED online. For more information, visit wwwprime medcom Thank you for learning with PRIMED.